Sport and Faith with Radio Maria. Hello, good afternoon everyone and welcome back to another episode of Sport and Faith at Radio Maria. Uh, my name's Laura, I'm one of the hosts. And good afternoon, I'm Father Toby, Laura's co-host, the Dominican Friar. And it's great to be in, in the studio for the first time. Yes, we're, um, we're very fortunate to have um, our guest, uh, Roy Peachy, and Toby and myself all live in the studio today, um, as as well as uh, Charles from Radio Maria, who's being a great help. Uh, we're all in on a bank holiday to record this episode for you. Um, and it's live, which is really, really exciting. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Roy. Thank you very much. Really good to be here. <laughs> Would you like to uh, tell everyone a little bit about why we've asked you to be on a Sport and Faith radio show yeah well i'd like to say it's because i'm a superstar sportsman but uh, sadly that isn't true i'm i'm very much uh, a faded amateur an ex-runner uh, but i suppose the reason i'm really here is because i've written a children's novel called the race which is all about eric liddell um, chariots of fire fame the great runner from the 1924 olympics and uh, it's a dual narrative book. It's also about a young Chinese-British sprinter called Lily. Great. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of inspiration and lots of themes related to um, sport and faith um, within this within this book, which has it came out this year. When, when exactly did it come out this year? It came out in June or July, something like that. Yes. And how and how does that feel? It feels great. And I'm really I'm really happy. It was uh, it was a great experience. So. It was my first children's novel. I've, I've written a novel for adults, but not a children's novel before. And the various events, you know, going on blogs and podcasts and writing uh, articles for newspapers was, was great fun. So it was a real learning experience for me and uh, wonderful to have people giving feedback as well about the book, children for whom it was written, and as well as reviewers. And I, I loved the, the way you spoke about um, at the end, originally you were going to write a book about Eric Little and then sort of just the story takes over in your head and you just start, sort of it starts coming out of you. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like and how sort of Lily developed in your head? Yeah, sure. So I used to be an amateur runner. I used to do a lot of running in my 20s and I would run. Uh, I was living in the Lake District at the time and we were part of a league that ran across the northwest of England so I was competing in Burnley and Blackburn and places like that. And I just love that feeling of, of running and running fast or as fast as I could manage anyway. Uh, and especially coming around the bend on the 200 metres, that's just a wonderful feeling knowing that you're going flat out. And then I carried on running for a little while. I was, I was running in Oxford for a team down there for a while. I ran on the Ifley Road track where Sir Roger Bannister broke the four-minute miles. So that was very exciting. And then as I got older, I got slower. So I started to run 10K races instead. And, uh, and then gradually, as I had a family, I didn't really have so much time for running. And so it, it very much disappeared. But just occasionally, I'd pull on my trainers again. And so there was one day when I was on holiday with, with my family and my oldest daughter and I went out for an early morning run. It was a beautiful day and we were just having a lovely time running together, really for the first time. And as I was running, these words popped into my head, which ended up as being the, the first words of the book. 
And I didn't know whose words they were. I, I assumed that they were... Well, I didn't know. I just didn't know at the time. So I then went on a bit of a, a journey myself to try and find out whose they were. And I'd been studying at SOAS, University of London, um, studying Chinese studies. And I'd come across the story of Eric Liddell there. And I knew that I knew Chariots of Fire. I knew that, that great movie and what that told us about Eric Little's life. But I had no idea about what happened next, what happened after the Olympics in 1924. And it's a fantastic story, an amazing story. And I thought there's a, it's an untold story. There's a, there's a novel here in this story, definitely. So at first I thought these words were probably Eric's. But then as I started writing, I discovered that there needed to be a another character as well and so I created this character of Lily who's a um, a girl she's not her age isn't given in the book but she's about 12 I guess and she gradually took on a life of her own she you know she ran onto the page I suppose and gradually I got to learn as I was writing about her who she was and what her connection with Eric Little was as well so her story is one set very much in the in the modern day set today and she's finding out about Eric but there's there's quite a lot of points of contact between them so they were both born in China both lived in Britain they're both sprinters uh, they're both trying to deal with some pretty big issues but their stories are different stories as well so it became this dual narrative book with the two stories running in parallel but going in slightly different directions yeah, thank you. And I really loved the way in the book, actually, you've got the two stories going on and then Lily finding out about Eric in the in the project um, as, as she's doing it. And we were speaking before and I was saying I had no idea about this other story around sort of Eric and his life after Chariots of, of Fire. And yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. Um, how did you first come across that or get interested in that sort of when you were at SOAS? You didn't intended to look at his life or you just came across him? No, when I was at SOAS, I did quite a lot of reading that wasn't on the reading list. So I remember being in the library and uh, I, was, I can't remember what the essay was I was supposed to be writing, but I was just browsing and finding all sorts of interesting books. So I, I remember finding a book about China in World War I, for example, and I had no idea that China had been involved in World War I and that gradually involved evolved into my, my my first novel for adults. Um, but while I was there, I also came across this story of Eric Little because the Eric Little archive, or at least part of the archive, is there at SOAS. So when I was researching the book, I had this very exciting day when I, I went back to SOAS and I went through the archive. And what does that mean? It meant that a couple of cardboard boxes were put on the desk in front of me, very nondescript, but then when I opened them, out came these letters that Eric had written from China um, just before World War II. Uh, very, very thin paper. But it suddenly was a, a connection across the decades. To see his actual handwriting. There was a, a beautiful painting of a Chinese peony, Chinese flower, which was there. And the story behind that, which maybe we'll touch on in, in a little bit, eventually worked its way into the book as well. So there was, there was a, a, a real learning process for me there, but it was partly about getting my hands on this original material. 
so there's, there's, there are two stories, really, actually, which I didn't really know very much about. One was the story of Eric before the 1924 Olympics. So he was, he was born in China to missionary parents. He uh, was educated in, in England, and he was very good at sport at school, as was his, his brother. And he went off to university at Edinburgh. And while he was at Edinburgh studying science, he played a lot of rugby and did a lot of running, and he ended up playing rugby for Scotland. So an amazing sportsman. And in fact, yesterday, he was inducted in the Scottish Rugby Hall of Fame. He played seven internationals for for Scotland. He scored um, a number of tries for them. He was a winger. Very, very good rugby player. And his first match for Scotland was in Paris at the Colombe Stadium. And then just a year or two later, he was back in that very same stadium competing in the 1924 Olympics for Great Britain. Uh, What he was supposed to be doing was running the 100 metres, but because he wouldn't run on a Sunday and the heats for the 100 metres were on a Sunday, there was a problem. And he absolutely refused to budge. He was really hot favourite for the 100 metres. And so he gave up an opportunity for gold, it seemed, But they managed to persuade him to run in the 400 metres instead, which wasn't his distance at all, he thought. And he ended up winning, not only winning, but breaking the world record in the process. So there's an incredible story there. And that's where Chariots of Fire finishes. But then after the 1924 Olympics, when he had the world at his feet, he could have carried on running. He could could have competed at the next Olympics. He could have made his absolute fortune but he chose to go back to China as a missionary following in his parents footsteps and then he lived first of all he was a teacher he lived a a fairly straightforward missionary life if you like but that wasn't enough for him either so he wanted to go right out into the countryside which was war-torn riven by poverty a really tough existence and he worked in a hospital there with his brother really putting his life on the line and some amazing stories about him saving uh, soldiers who had been left for dead uh, by the invading Japanese forces. And then, of course, when World War II broke out or when Pearl Harbor happened anyway, suddenly he was an an enemy. And so he, along with all of the other uh, Brits and uh, Americans and others who were in the country at the time, were rounded up, taken to uh, a prison camp And the story carries on from there. So an amazing life and an amazing story, but one that's largely unknown. Does he um, speak much about his sort of spirituality of running? I know there's the the one famous quote, um, which I'll let you do because I'll probably muck it up. Um, But does he write anywhere else about how he feels when he's running and this God-given talent that he's got and why he chooses or whether a dilemma about sort of going into something more serious I don't think he does very much. He talks, he wrote a book called Christian Discipleship and he talks a little bit in that about the way, the ways in which both athletes and Christians need discipline. And he refers to some of St. Paul's comments about running the race, but he doesn't, he doesn't take it much further than that, than that. And I think the reason for that is because he was incredibly humble. He, he, didn't like to draw attention to himself. He certainly didn't strut around the place as Olympic gold medalist at all. So 
it would have been lovely in many ways if he had drawn the parallels more, but it wasn't there because he was largely self-effacing, I think. And what about his um, the importance of his faith as he was growing up? Because obviously, to have such strong, such a strong conviction that he couldn't run on a Sunday because that would would break the Sabbath, and obviously to to make such a big life decision, um, even after a lot of people would have said he had a, a path open to him after winning the Olympics to continue in sport, to continue with that westernised lifestyle, but he decided to to go back to China and felt that call to be a missionary. Um, did you learn much about the influence of his? Um, parents on his on his faith or his personal experience of faith it seems to have been a remarkable family his parents seem to have been a a huge influence on him a a real example of commitment over time to the people of china at what was a very difficult period in in chinese history the the republic of china was was very young still and there were warlords in effect, in control of lots of different parts of China. So it was a it was a tough gig to be a missionary in China in that early half of the 20th century. But uh, his parents sent him and his brother uh, Rob to be educated in England. They went to Eltham College, which at the time was quite well known, I think, for, for missionary children, and there was a strong Christian ethos there. So I think the combination of his education his parental, the parental influence meant that he, he did internalise it, but he still had to make that, that decision for himself. And, of course, when you are highly successful, as successful as he w- was, it would have been very easy for him to go off on another track. So I think it was still a great surprise in many ways that he chose to turn his back on all of that and to, to return to China after the 24 Olympics. He did carry on running. It's not that he gave up on sport at all. He did compete in China. And there was even some vague talk of him competing in the next Olympics, but that never transpired. And it's very interesting that when he eventually he was interned in the prison camp, one of the things that he famously did was to organise athletics events and other sporting events for the children. So this, this camp was an amazing place because the, suddenly you had a whole load of people thrown into really quite a small area, far more than the place could cope with. And the organisation of that camp was very impressive. They set up their own hospital. They set up they had to set up essentially everything from scratch. And although it worked on a practical level, the children were going wild. They had nothing really to live for. And Eric was clearly... a an avuncular figure, he became Uncle Eric to a lot of these children. And so one of the ways in which he kept them on the straight and narrow was by organising sports events. So the, there were hockey matches, there were other types of sports, but there were these athletics runs as well, athletics meetings. And very interestingly, what he did there was that he refused to run slowly in order to be beaten. Lots of people wanted to beat Eric Liddell, Olympic gold medalist. But he said, no, that actually wouldn't be good for their pride. So he still ran to win, even when he was in this prison camp, but because he was thinking about other people. It's it's not necessarily the way you might imagine it to be, or it might not be the way that others might have responded. I smiled a lot at that part because the attitudes between my parents were incredibly different. Um, I'm ultra competitive, and I get that from my dad, who would never let me win as a kid. 
And my mum would always say, oh, just let him win, let him win, it'd be nice for him. And it's like, no, he'll never learn anything from cheap wins. So it appears my, my dad had something in common there with uh, sort of Eric Little. Um, <laughs> I really, really smiled as I, as I read that. Um, what actually denomination was he? Well, he was a, he was a convinced Protestant and he... I mean, I think the Protestant missions in China were fairly interdenominational at that time. Um, so he was, um, I, I think he was not sort of particularly enveloped by one hmm. denomination at all, although he was ordained in the end. Um, but he worked with all sorts of people. So there were some amazing Trappist monks, for example, who were interned in the same prison camp. And although they were poles apart theologically in some ways, the the two groups, and, and Eric Little and a, a particular Trappist monk called Father Patrick Scanlon, clearly got on incredibly well, worked practically together. And Patrick Scanlon, this Trappist monk who'd been living a life of silence in China, was suddenly thrown into this very different situation. And he organised a smuggling ring, smuggling food into the camp. And Eric Little joined in with this work as well. So you've got these two incredibly devote, devoted, uh, devoted, devout, there I've got my words right now, um, devoted and devout Christians running a smuggling ring, essentially to keep people alive in the camp. Well, again, I, I smiled when I read that when you spoke about Father Patrick smuggling stuff underneath his scapula because occasionally when I've bought a couple more books and gone back to my mother's and she doesn't sort of approve of me buying as many books as I do, I've hidden them under my scapula with my hands in, in the hope that they might go unnoticed. So Yeah, the Dominican scapulas are very useful. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions I wanted to ask, Roy, um, going back a little bit to the writing process, I loved when you said that um, Lily just kind of ran onto the page because whenever I've been involved in any writing, um, any sort of official formal writing training I've been involved with, and they've said, oh, you must you must plan it out before you write. You must have a have a plan. But I've often found that the plan doesn't doesn't work for me. It feels very um just not very creative, not for me, not not very inventive, and I don't know what to write for a plan. But if I just start writing a simple description or about a character, then then things can can flow, including a, a whole narrative arc. Um, so I want to ask a little bit about that, um, and then I've got another question about sort of the the idea of Lily and Eric kind of speaking to each other through time. Okay, great crumbs. Two big questions there. <laughs> so the first one, I think it can work both ways. I have tried writing with a very detailed plan, which I often plot out on late evening dog walks, and that can work quite well. But I think with this particular book, I had some sort of idea of where I was going with this, partly because Eric's story is there already, but there were a lot of gaps as well. And I find that writing gives you two pleasures at once. It gives you the pleasure of creating something new, which is a wonderful, a wonderful feeling to be writing something and creating from scratch. But it also gives you the pleasure of, of reading. You get the pleasure that you get from reading any book as well. So to a certain extent, I felt in control of what I was doing. And to a certain extent, I was sitting back and enjoying what was appearing. Then there's another stage, of course, which is the editing. And, and that's the time consuming part and the really important part, in some ways, the most important part. 
And that can be heartbreaking sometimes because you end up cutting hundreds, sometimes thousands of words that you've painstakingly written. But I think all of those go together. So with Lily, there was very much a sense of me dwelling on things that were buried relatively deep, I guess, partly on a running front. I hadn't been running seriously for a number of years and yet writing about it, writing about a runner, writing from a runner's point of view brought a lot of those those feelings back. So I enjoyed that. But also there's another story going on and I didn't know how the book was going to end, for example. There were different ways it could have gone and so that was quite fun, quite exciting, seeing how that developed. And I suppose that leads me on to your second question about how the two characters are linked. And as I said at the, much earlier, they are linked in, in different ways. So they are both born in China and they are both British. And that dual heritage is very important. So for Lily, she is very proud of being born in China, of being Chinese, she was then adopted into uh, by a British family. So she's also very proud of being British. And that dual heritage is, is hugely important to her. So you've got a dual narrative, you've got a dual heritage. And similarly with, with Eric Liddell, he was born in China. He died in China. He lived a, a large part of his life in China. He was, to all intents and purposes, Chinese, but he was running for Britain in the Olympics. So China often claim him as their first Olympic gold medalist, even though he was running for, for Britain in 1924, and, and rightly so. So clearly there are lots of questions today about identity, about heritage, and this book was an attempt to address some of those there. But then there's also that question that came through about how do you respond to circumstances that are out of your control? And Eric's circumstances were fairly extraordinary. There's a world war. There's chaos in the countryside where he's working. But Lily also, I don't know how much to say about the plot here without giving it all away, but Lily, who is training for a really important race. It's her school sports day where for the first time the boys are able to compete against the girls. So she's, there are some fairly obnoxious boys who are determined to beat her in this sports day race. And she's always won every race she's taken part in because she's, you know, she's a great sprinter. She's competing nationally. But now there's an extra edge to this particular race. It's the school's anniversary and so the Queen is going to be there for this particular sports day. So that gives it an extra edge as well. And then events intervene. And she has got to make a really important decision, just like Eric did. And at that point, you get the question of how far sport can take you. So clearly there are lots of positives to sport. But there's a moment when sport perhaps has to be superseded by more important things still and that's the crux of the of the book in some ways i found that part very interesting because i was really hanging on edge wondering what lily's going to do and i'm not going to say exactly what it is but the thing that i thought interesting in some ways from a, a catholic moral perspective is that both of the things she could do would be could be good but it's the reasons that we that we do them for. And so often in the moral life, there's not a right or a wrong answer. But um, 
there's what the most loving thing to do in the in the situation is there and i thought it was interesting the way that that un unfolded and the way actually that you have her parents leaving it to her to make the decision you know granting children some moral autonomy to to make a choice of their own yes thank you and i suppose that's one of the things that fiction is good at exploring that although there are clear rights and wrongs there are you know, there is there are decisions which are morally right and decisions which are morally wrong in daily life often we don't have that same clarity and the decisions that we make could either decision we have to make and sometimes it's more than two decisions can be right mm. but there is still a process of discernment i suppose that you have to go through to work it out and if you're only a 12 year old girl uh, or whatever lily is then that's obviously tough that's tough mm. and so it's a big moment of growing up for her mm. in the book in those sorry in those situations i do feel like sometimes where there's two right right answers you do feel what's right for you because of the guidance of the holy spirit or what comes to you in in prayer which can be can be helpful i sometimes get to a point where i can't really explain why i've chosen a particular path objectively compared to another one which might also seem seem like it's a good thing to do but yeah i think that can be um helpful yes i guess that's right and within the book although eric's faith is is very clear lily and lily is also part of a christian family i very much deal with that with a light touch um, this is not a book in which i want to be preaching to children or young adults at all but nonetheless, there is. It is important that these these questions are addressed. Um, so, but it's addressed, I think, hopefully through the story, rather than as a substitute homily. Well, I found that very interesting. The way that faith is clearly the context for Lily's family life, and it's important to them when they're going away for weekends that um, that they find a church to to go to, as well as um, her running in her meet. And then to, to give a plug to a, another book of yours when you're um, 50 Christian Classics, is that the actual name of the book? or 50 Books for Life. 50 Books for Life. Plug away, go. plug away. Um, where, you, where you speak about um, Tolkien's sort of writing and he doesn't have to be explicit with religion because sort of religion and Catholicism is the fabric on which the whole, the whole thing is set. And I, and I think it's the problem with some sort of contemporary sort of fiction by Catholic writers in that they're so conscious of maybe the, the gulf that it, that exists or the, the torn fabric of the, the chasuble, I think, as you, you mentioned, that they think, well, what you need to be really, really explicit and they don't leave much room for people to sort of inhabit the moral dilemmas of the characters themselves, which I think is such a crucial part of fiction that actually the choice becomes ours in a certain way and we become conscious of where we would have gone and, and people make mistakes. Yes, I think I think Tolkien is absolutely fascinating. Uh, seems strange talking about him because he's in an utterly different league from me. But Tolkien referred to The Lord of the Rings as a fundamentally Catholic book. But in that same paragraph, when he was writing about that, he said, but I took the religion out. And in fact, he says it several times in his writings, how he, he doesn't have religion in his books. He, there is very little very little indeed, by way of explicit worship, prayer, 
any of the sacraments, for example, but it's all subsumed, it's all absorbed within the stories and the symbolism, he says. And it's very interesting how he does this. He writes a deeply Christian, deeply Catholic book in The Lord of the Rings, but without there being any of those, any of the external trappings, and obviously it's more than external trappings of religion that we're also familiar with, and the ways in which he works the liturgy, liturgical time, morality, philosophy into the Lord of the Rings without making any of it explicit is is incredible. It's amazing how he does that. And I think it's I think it's a tough situation for writers of faith generally at the moment because the world of publishing is generally speaking a very secular world. It's quite difficult to break into that um, area as a as a Christian writer. But on the other hand, as you say, there's a danger that we perhaps become defensive and veer too far the other way and become tub-thumping about it. And I think we have to respect our readers, the, the children in this case, for who they are and give them that authority to be able to think through things themselves. So there's there are parameters within which... Uh, the moral dilemmas of this book are explored, but there is a lot of room left as well for the reader to to think and decide and reflect. Mm. I think you're absolutely right there, Father Toby. I think the the themes and the um, the framework of the faith in the book is very clear, but at the same time, it isn't rammed down your throat. It is it is very subtle how it's kind of weaved in, which is great. Yeah, like I'd be very happy to give this to somebody that's non-religious and knowing actually that they'll get something religious out of it, which is which is great. There's a, another sort of contemporary um, aspect of the, the of the modern world that you you deal with. Again, I think in a in a really helpful way. There's and it's and it's big in sport now. Identity politics um, and obviously the the transgender thing is one of the big issues in sport, but also around nationality and it's been interesting with Emma Raducanu that um, she's been really embraced by Romania um, and, um, you know, her, her heritage being so so interesting with China and Romania and England and Canada. and um, but, uh, but sort of with Lily, that some of those issues arise. And I wonder how conscious you were of writing about some identity or whether that's just a feature of writing in the, in the modern world now. Yes, I was conscious of writing about those topics, and I think they are big topics and they're really important topics. I think they've become more obvious topics since I actually finished writing the book, although the book was published in 2021. It was written before that, and the world has become ever more interested in these topics since. How to deal with those sorts of issues sensitively is very difficult, I think. But I wanted to write a story that was both realistic and positive. And in particular, I wanted to write a story about adoption that was realistic and positive. So Lily has a, a wonderful family, a slightly eccentric family at times. Her father in particular is a little bit all over the place, uh, but a great character. I really enjoyed writing his part but she's very proud of her family. This is her family. This is her adoptive family. This is her family. And I wanted to treat that sensitively, but also to explore what it meant to be someone who is adopted. 
and someone who is therefore thinking through certain questions about her, her background. And in this particular book, there's a question of um, someone being Chinese-British, but of course, lots of people have um, interesting, mixed, complex, sometimes heritage. And so I hope that people will be able to read something of their own situation into the questions that she's exploring there. And of course, the, there is the link with Eric Liddell as well. So Eric Liddell is a Scottish hero, rightly so. He is, you know, he played Scotland, he played rugby for Scotland. He uh, was educated at Edinburgh University, but he's also a hero in China and he's a British hero. So again, we there's a danger in trying to pin him down to put him into one particular box. And there's a point in the book where Lily talks about the fact that people want to stick her in a box and then stick a label on it. And the trouble is she doesn't fit into most boxes. And I think that's true of lots of people. We, we sometimes try to label people and it's, it's never a helpful thing to do. Well, this was another fascinating thing saying about sticking Lily in a box because we don't normally associate, um, China with sprinters, although I think the the, the 110 metre hurdler now, the world champion, I think he's Chinese. Um, I can't remember his his name off the top of my head. But um, it's very interesting how certain events get tied up with certain countries and cultures, like middle distance running. North Africans really love the lo longer distances and, and middle distance sort of East Africa, sprinting sort of um, West Indians. Um, but we're seeing some changes in that now and some of the ideas about, oh, well, it's all down to physiology, whereas actually some of this stuff seems to be more cultural now as people from other countries break through in different events. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, there's a rich tradition of Chinese sprinting, which perhaps most people wouldn't know about. And it is really irritating when people stereotype Chinese people in the usual ways. I don't need to go through the list of ways here, and I, I really wanted to avoid that. And Lily in the book says she wanted to break through, break through those stereotypes, break free from them as well. And that's one of the reasons why she became a sprinter. Think about the last Olympics, the most recent Olympics. The Italians did incredibly well in, in the sprints and various other events as well. Again, not necessarily in the nation you'd be expecting to do so well in the, in the sprints, but... Of course, there's no intrinsic reason why any nationality shouldn't um, be successful in a particular event. But sometimes we hold ourselves back. We don't allow ourselves to think we've got a chance because there isn't a tradition there of people competing in that event from our country. Yeah, although I was surprised by the Italian sprinters because nothing happens quickly in Italy from my experience <laughs> there. So. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I'd better comment on that. No, no, no that's just maybe it's just Rome. Maybe the rest of Italy things happen a little quicker. So I just want to ask uh, one more question around. Um, I said I alluded to it earlier, but everything you've said um, since has sort of reinforced this idea when we talked about Tolkien, um, Eric Little, and Lily. I think writing is an amazing way to feel like, in a way, you're conversing with or, or connecting to somebody that was in a completely different time. And I think sport can be a great thing for that as well. A lot of people are aware of who they're in the footsteps of when they're competing and um, especially linked to those ideas of identity and heritage and 
team affiliation and and, and ancestry. Um, so I just wondered if you had any um, reflections on on the writing process and about that idea of using sport writing both to sort of connect two people in different times and places. I think sport itself is capable of being written about in all sorts of different ways. I mean, itself in itself, it is intrinsically dramatic. That's one reason why it's so popular. So there's, in a sense, there's a ready-made story there. But you've also got this interesting mix of the personal and the and the group dynamic. So Lily is, as a sprinter, she's on her own. When she's running that race, when she's on the blocks ready to start, she's on her own. And yet there is a team behind her. So the, there's a character called Billy Battle, who's her, her running coach in the book. And she's absolutely reliant upon him. She's very grateful for all of the help that he gives her. So there's this team behind her. And then there's also her family, who, as Father Toby said, are driving her around at weekends. They're very much behind her, very much supporting her in what she's doing. There's her grandma, who's a kind of interesting character in the book and a key character in the end in the book, who's also there keeping her grounded in many ways. So you've got that sense of the individual and the team. I'm a great cricket fan and you get that in cricket. You know, when you're in the middle, you're pretty much on your own. There's another batsman 22 yards away, but you've got to face, you know, the Aussie quicks or whoever it is on your own, but you're very much playing a team sport. But then there's also that sense of history bound up with any sport. I mean, we're here in Cambridge where... The rules of association football were drawn up on Parker's Peace just down the road. You've got Jack Hobbs, Ranjit Sini, some of the great cricketing heroes from the past were again playing just down the road. You've got Fenners. There's a rich tradition. And cricket fans, football fans, sports fans generally tap into that. In a couple of years' time, we'll be back in Paris for the Olympics, the 1924 Olympics centenary. And... That 1924 Olympics was an incredible, incredible time. There were all sorts of individual stories there that I'm sure we'll hear a lot about in a couple of years' time. And the Olympics wouldn't be the Olympics without that, that history. So I think it's really important that we do connect to the past, that we learn from the past. I think there's a danger that in the modern world we are cut adrift from the past I've written in a few places about the dangers of presentism, that sense that we we are so immersed in the present that we don't learn from the past, that we're cut off from it. And I think that's a danger for young people, perhaps in particular. And I suppose sport is one way of tapping into that heritage, if you like, although heritage makes it sound slightly fusty, but tapping into it in a way that is still live and invigorating. Well, I, th- I think that's really interesting point because in a in a world which seems obsessed with sort of denigrating the past now, sport seems one of those areas, particularly I think around club sport, um, where people really respect the history of the club that they belong to, the club that they support. And I see it with um, two of my godchildren now. Sadly, their dad doesn't love them enough to make them anything other than Spurs fans, but they're learning about all the history of uh, of, of Spurs now because because they love the present team they want to learn about its past and about the heroes of the past and then they start learning other little anecdotal things about history through that so i think it's a really positive uh thing 
Yeah, so I think when you're committed to a team, whether it's Spurs or Gillingham in my case, who've never hit the dizzy heights of any success at all, really, then you're naturally drawn back to those old stories in the end. And and therefore there is a there is a link, there is a, a living tradition. Again, perhaps if we think about cricket, cricket has changed in many ways out of all recognition with 2020 and the 100 and mm. the razzmatazz of, of modern cricket. But there is still that vital link with the past, essentially mm. through through test matches, but through the county setup as well. And we, we sever that at our peril. So I think that is important. And and it's a, it's an aspect of the past that we don't even question. Mm. I think, as you say, it's just if you are a fan, then you naturally become interested in the history of your particular mm. club. And we can see something similar, I think, with the, the church. In that If we love the church, then we want to learn more about the history of the church. And give a plug to another book of yours there. Um, and, and and we can be honest about sort of things which were were not what they should have been in the in the in the past and things that were great in the past to to celebrate and yet nonetheless because because we love it we want to learn all about it and because we love it we're more hurt by the things that were bad in the past but we don't desert it in the same way that people on hearing about sort of you know the low times the relegations or even sometimes the scandals in their in their clubs wish not to repeat that again but they don't just ditch the club yeah we all have a very short memory don't we and when we think about the past, we tend to think about the recent past. And yet the history of the church is incredible. I mean, the fact that we've had this institution around for 2000 years is amazing. It's really very surprising in in human terms that any institution should last 2000 years it just doesn't really happen. And during those 2000 years, there were an awful lot of heroes. There are number of villains as well. There were people who made mistakes. There were people who did remarkable things. And here am I sitting next to a Dominican friar. You know, we need to know about St. Dominic and also St. Francis and various other characters from the past. But let's stick with St. Dominic Mainly for the Saint moment. Dominic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, uh, you know, in Christmas time, I think it's a particular... Um, a particularly good time liturgically for reflecting on, on, on the history and... You know, when we when we come to celebrate, you know, the incarnation, um, we think back to our our ancestors in in the faith who who waited and waited for for the Messiah, and then we're living in the the next period of time between the first and the second coming. And I've definitely found that particularly poignant as I have taken more of an interest in learning about the history of the church and and just reading more of of the Bible. You know, which is something that I grew to do as as I learned more and more about the faith and developed in my faith. And it's a bit like you know, researching your family history. You know, you've always been part of that family, but it takes something to prompt you to actually go back and look and, and discover that that richness. And um, it gives your present reality so much more meaning, which is, a, you know, a thread, I think, that we've been talking about with the characters in your book, Roy, and also, you know, the the reflections out to the wider world in the sports world and in individual families and communities and, and with the church as well. Yes, that's right. And and yet it's not an antiquarian interest. It's not just a hobby. As Christians, we're always running a race. We're, we are looking towards the goal and the goal we haven't yet reached. So there's also always that forward dimension, that future dimension as well. But um, if we think of life as a race, which is what St Paul and others encourage us to do, then you know it's got to start. 
the firing gun has already been fired. We're already running. But there's a, there's a, a finishing post as well. There's a, a tape to be broken through. And then there's the, the cloud of witnesses cheering us on. And there's the... You know, there's the uh, glorious celebration, hopefully, when we get to the end. As the community, like we said, you know, we might be individ- feeling like we're individually running the race, but we're, we're certainly not alone. We have that team. We have that, that community. What a great analogy to finish on. Thank you for joining us for the Sport and Faith. This was the first live episode and it didn't go without too many hitches. So thank you and we look forward to um, next month when uh, Laura and Father Toby will be back again with a new guest for the next episode. <laughs>